All right, may you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll begin in verse number 56 this morning. Luke 1, 56. Thank you for the good singing. I love hearing you guys sing. I am going to miss that. I'm going to miss that. I have visited some churches in America, and uh, I, unfortunately, I'm the loudest one that, that sings there, and that's not always a good thing. It, it's, it's something special to hear a group of people singing together like that. It really does something for your soul. Luke 1 and verse number 56 is where we'll start. Let's begin even before reading. Bow our heads together and pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for the chance to open up our Bibles, and Father, at the same time, we want to open up our hearts. Please speak to us now, God. I want to preach on breaking the silence, but Lord, I believe this starts with you speaking to us. We want to hear from you. We want it, God. We need it. Please help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, I'm preaching on breaking the silence, as you can see in your outline. We have a lot of verses to cover, verses 56 down to the end of the chapter. This is, of course, the time that Zechariah, he's been waiting nine long months he has been mute and possibly deaf, as we'll see later, for this entire time. His son in this passage, John, is going to be born, and it is then time for him to break his silence. So let's see what God has for us in these verses. In verse 56, Mary abode with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her own house. This is kind of a transitional verse. We've been chatting the last t couple of sermons about Mary and Elizabeth and their interaction, that spirit-filled fellowship, and then Mary talking about the great things that God had done for her. And now, three months later, it's time, the transition is happening. It's time for Elizabeth to give birth. The focus is once again on Elizabeth, Zacharias, John, and always Jesus. But let me make quick mention of something in verse 56. Three months of pre-marriage counseling. That is more or less what Mary had. Now, in our culture, in Western culture, we, we don't put nearly that much emphasis on getting ready for a marriage. We put three months easily, six months, nine months, 12 months of effort into the wedding, but the marriage rarely gets that much attention. Now, it wasn't uncommon in Jewish culture for the young lady to spend not only three months, but sometimes six or even nine or 12 months, not just preparing her dress for the wedding, but learning from the older godly women in her life. Imagine the lessons you might pick up. So younger folks, and I guess this is true for the older folks as well, no matter when you're getting married, take advantage of the experience around you. Verse number 57, now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. Notice in the verse, it says, the Lord had showed great mercy upon her. The neighbors and cousins were re rejoicing with Elizabeth because she has brought forth a son. But this is more than just the typical situation of a mom bringing forth a firstborn son. This is Elizabeth who was thought to be barren, and therefore a reproach to all of society. And now the Lord has lifted that reproach, flipped the script, so to speak, and has now shown His, His approval on Elizabeth and Zacharias. And now the cousins and neighbors, they're rejoicing not just that a child has been born, but that Elizabeth and Zacharias has been vindicated. In verse number 59, it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father, well, there's nothing wrong with what they're trying to do. This is typical Jewish custom, especially when you have a, a father of the stature of Zacharias, a priest, the tribe of Levi. God has done this great thing by letting them have a boy. Let's name the child after Zacharias in honor of the dad. This is Jewish culture, but watch what happens. Verse 60, his mother answered and said, not so, uh-uh, but he shall be called John. Now, Johannes, John, Johannan from the Hebrew, was also a fairly common name, not completely unknown to the Jews, not as common as maybe Zacharias, but this was not, this was not common in their family, and this caught them all by surprise. 
in verse number 61, and they said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. Elizabeth, you're going off script. You're doing something very counter-cultural. This is not how we do it. Verse 62, and they made signs to his father how he would have him called. Now, this is interesting because we know from earlier in the chapter, Zacharias is mute. He cannot speak, but according to this, it makes it look as if he cannot hear. And there is no definite way to be sure. Did he also lose his hearing? Is he now deaf and mute? And medically, I'm not a doctor, so please uh, research this out with people that might know better. But from the best I could tell, when the tongue is tied, it can also affect a person's hearing. So it could very well be that deafness was a secondary consequence, if you will, to Zacharias's tongue being tied. Now, it could also be that because Zacharias could not speak, he was using signs, and the people around him got used to those signs and just began to use them back. It could be something as simple as that, but maybe there was a further consequence. Might I just say that when you rebel against God, one consequence might lead to another that might lead to another. It could very well be that. Verse number 63, and he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. I like that. This is point number one on your outline if you have this paper handy. Point one, standing against culture. Standing against culture. As best we know, he couldn't speak, right? We know that for sure. But Zechariah still had something to say. And I wish it would be so nice if we had more men of the house that would stand up and have something to say. Too often these days, it's Elizabeth that stands up and rightfully so says this is how it's going to be. And she was right. But in so many cases in today's society, the woman is having to stand up and, and stand for what God wants to be done because the man, it's not that he's deaf and mute, he's just weak. He's spiritually impotent. He cannot and will not take the stand that he needs to, to take. Zacharias, although he cannot physically speak, he had something to say. He knew what the will of God was, and he is willing to stand up for it and say, I know this is not part of our culture. Our society does things differently. Maybe in our family this is how it's always been, but from here on out, I've got to obey God rather than men. And I know this might seem strange, and the rest of my friends and family, that's who's there in the house, right? Friends and family. They may not understand, but this is what God told me to do. What he's essentially saying, if I can take it from the book of Joshua, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Gentlemen, if I might address you for a moment, we need more men to stand up and make that proclamation. Ladies, I'm not taking away from you taking that stand. We need you also to, to have that same attitude in your heart, but we need men who will be godly, biblical leaders of their home to say this is the path we're going to take regardless of how many people laugh at us or don't understand what we're doing. God has showed it very clearly. This is the way it must be done. Unfortunately, we have many men in today's society that do have the power of speech but have nothing to say. They have the power of speech and they use it often, but what they say isn't worth saying. Zacharias, on the other hand, stands for what God has revealed to him. Verse 63, at the end of it, it says, and they marveled all. They marveled all. They said, wow, what is going on here? For centuries, they had followed one custom, and now let's change things. Let's stir things up. And if we're ever going to see revival, if we're ever going to see things change, something has to be done differently. We can't just keep repeating the past over and over and expect a different outcome. We've got to allow God to interject into our lives and say, this is the left turn, the right turn you need to take. This is the path. Walk ye in it. They marveled. They said, what is this new thing? They find out that the will of God trumps culture. The will of God trumps culture. When a person in this society is baptized as an adult, as Yala say, the chruetduop, it gets the attention of many people around. It causes them to marvel and say, what is this going on? Hey, buti, sissy. 
ons, ons doen, we, we do the claim to up. What is here? What, what, what is, what's going on? And it gets their attention. And listen, I understand people might be offended and they might take it strangely. That's not our heart. We're not trying to offend and make enemies out of friends and family. That's not the point. But God said, once you've been saved, publicly associate yourself with me by getting in that water and being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to say that I'm following God above men. I have a relationship with Christ that I'm not ashamed of. It may not be culturally acceptable to speak with your friends and family about the Lord Jesus Christ. They say religion is private. It's just a matter of the heart. But the Bible commands us to speak up, to break the silence. Say, I'm not ashamed of what I believed. I believe the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to all them that believe, to the Jew, to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of that, and I'm willing to break the silence. Regardless of how many South Africans before me, black or white, doesn't matter. No matter how many of them think this is strange, it's right. Yes, they're going to marvel, and they're going to wonder. When I first got here, people said, listen, in South Africa, we go to church once a week, Sunday morning, then we go home, and that's it. After that, come on, spray. And I'm not, I'm not against Komons Brai. Amen. Put another sticky vores op the Brai for me. I'm all for it. Amen. Hello. You got my number. You know where to find me. <laughs> not against that. D- did you know there's no verse in the Bible that says you have to come to Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night Bible school, Thursday night small group. There's no verse that says you have to come to all that. And I don't mean to condemn the guiltless and put extra pressure on you and your schedule. Everybody's different on this with what their schedule allows. I understand that. But can I offer you my insight on this? I'm not trying to bring some American strange culture and enforce it on you. That's not it. The Bible says that we are to consider one another to love, to provoke to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, listen, and, but to exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I do not claim that our schedule comes from any one passage of the Bible. I get that. I know that. All I've tried to do is introduce as many opportunities for you to get the Word of God throughout the week, for you to experience the fellowship with each other. And if you've been around this church in this last week, let me just speak for myself. I know this is true of some of you because you've said it to me. What I got not just from the preaching, but from the fellowship of being around God's people this week has helped me more. In the, in the last two years with all this COVID stuff, I didn't realize how much I missed it. But it was something special. You understand, I'm not trying to put some legalistic idea of you got to pitch up and sit there heartlessly through a multitude of services. We're just trying to stir the pot a little bit to say, yes, this is what you're used to and this is how it's always been done. But I think we need a great influx of the Word of God into your lives. What you've been getting may not be enough and we need to break the silence on that and say there's a reason. There's a reason we're inviting you to all of these things. In verse number 64, and his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed And he spake and praised God. Now that's a good way to use the tongue. That's a good way to get it done. He's been waiting around for nine months. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? He knows when his tongue is going to be loosed. It's when the baby's born. He was told that. But the precise moment, right? The day and the hour, right? He's not for sure of that. What am I going to say? He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, finally, God, why? All these other people, so bad. You took my speech. These people cussing and lying and deceiving. You took my speech. He didn't do that. He took it like a man and said, I deserve the punishment that I got. Now it's time to praise God. Verse 65, And fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. Man, breaking the silence. Hey, God's doing something special. Not quite sure what all it means yet. Zacharias knows what it is. Verse 66, and all they that heard them laid, them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. It was with John. Why? Because his daddy Zacharias was willing to break the silence. 
and say, God told me to raise this boy like this, to call him that. God told me this boy is going to be used of God in this and this way, and I take that seriously. And all the people stood there and listened and said, oh boy, this is something different. And they started to break the silence. They took it to all the hill country and said, you got to hear this story. There's got to be something special about this kid because Zacharias couldn't talk for nine months. And then as soon as he called him John, counterculturally, man, everything just changed and his mouth opened. There's got to be something special about this boy. Say, why won't God fix my problems right away? I'm going through all this tough stuff and, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about it. What, why won't God step in and fix it? God might be waiting for that perfect time when he fixes that problem and you're able to say something about it, he fixes that problem and other people in the room can see what God has done. Now it changes so many other lives more than just your own. Why not give Zacharias his speech back after four months or five? I mean, hadn't he learned the lesson? It's more than just Zacharias that needs to hear what he's saying. Breaking the silence leads to others breaking that silence. In verse 66, notice in the middle, what manner of child shall this be? God's plan at that time was literally in its infant stages. They would have to wait another 20 or even 30 years to see the full, let's say, completion or fruit of this one event. And what God is doing in your heart and mind today, this one sermon, this one seed that gets planted, you may not see today how far-reaching the effects are of what He's doing right now, but just be patient. Just be patient. Immerse yourself in a biblical life, and in due time you'll see that's what this is all about. I'm so glad I waited on God. Point number two on your outline, saved from their enemies. saved from their enemies. Zacharias, he broke the silence by standing against his culture, which by the way, that part of his culture wasn't wrong. He just needed to obey God. And now Zacharias is going to speak and give us this great, let's call it a sermon, but it's actually a song. And what we're about to read, it sounds very much like the book of Psalms, very much. What we read a couple weeks ago from Mary very much like the book of Psalms. If you're familiar with the book of Psalms, you would immediately see the connection. Wouldn't it be so great that when we begin to praise God, people will say, that sounds like the Bible. Man, when that guy talks, it sounds an awful lot like the Bible. That would be a great habit to be in. Verse 67, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost. Have you noticed in Luke's writing, right, we're going through the gospel of Luke now, the Holy Spirit keeps showing up. Luke writes more about the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, or John. It's going to be all through his gospel. Just watch that as we go through the book over the weeks and months to, to come. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now that's interesting. Zacharias is of the house of Levi. John is by then, uh, then a Levite, right, of the house of Levi. So when he says he's raised us up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, this means Zacharias has put it all together, the whole plan. It's not just my boy, but my cousin Mary, by marriage, right, my cousin Mary, she's giving birth to the one who will be the Savior, and my boy is intimately connected to that boy he's going to be pointing people to that boy and that he sees the whole plan the big plan not just what's going on in his life or his family's life but this life and that and how God is doing all these big things I wonder this morning can you see the big plan it's not about just your house or your family but the things he's doing in your family, domino effect it, it topples onto this family and it touches this and then that life is touched and that life is touched Zacharias, filled with the Spirit, the Spirit brings things to remembrance. He says, you remember what I told you about your boy? How he's going to prepare the way for the Lord? Now, you remember what Mary came and said? Remember what, what the Holy Spirit showed your wife Elizabeth? Now, put it all together. Zacharias says, I, I see it. I see the whole plan. I hope you see the whole plan. 
Say, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, buried and rose again. How does that affect me? See the whole plan. Washes away your sins. The Holy Spirit lives within and begins to work in you to conform you to the image of Christ. Do you see where that ends up? That ends up with a trumpet sounding, your body being changed, flying away to heaven. So shall we ever be with the Lord. We come back to the earth. We live with Him on the earth for a thousand years. Heaven and earth flee away. We walk into New Jerusalem. There we are at the throne of God. There's no more day and night. Uh, the sun is there, but we don't even need it for the light of the Lamb is the light thereof. And all, all for eternity, all we get to do is worship Him in spirit and in truth and absolute 100% perfect pure love with everybody we see that's the whole picture now we go right back down to our little day what are we doing here now once I know the big picture no wonder they're full of joy no wonder they no wonder I want to break the silence on that now I get to play a little part in that big plan he said blessed be the Lord God verse 68 69, he's raised us up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Verse 70, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Now, do you see the big picture? <laughs> Zacharias took what the angel showed him, what the Holy Spirit showed Elizabeth, what the angel showed Mary, and he goes, okay, let's search the scriptures to see if these things are so. How does this fit in with what God has said? He goes all the way back to the very first prophet. Do you know who that is? The first prophet in the Bible? Enoch. Enoch. You know what Enoch prophesied about? One day the Lord's coming with ten thousands of his saints and is going to rain down judgment on all the ungodly. And every prophet since then has been speaking about this time when the Messiah will come and set things right. And Zechariah sees himself in this long-term plan. In verse number 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He sware to our father Abraham, that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. So this is point two, right, that I've given you, saved from their enemies. Zacharias understands his part in God's covenant that he made with all the way back to Abraham. Now this covenant is known by a couple of names in Scripture as you see here, verse 72, the Holy Covenant. You'll find that in the book of Daniel and other places. But also in the book of Psalms it's referred to as the Everlasting Covenant, Genesis 17, the Everlasting Covenant. Both names perfectly applicable. What this covenant entails, God promised Abraham that I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. They will live in the land of Canaan. I shall be their God, and you shall be my, my people. That land belongs to Israel because God gave it to them. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement this morning. I do not think that we need to go and fight a war with our guns and tanks and bombs and planes to rescue Israel and give them their land. That's the Messiah's job. Our job is to take the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike and save them spiritually, right? That, that's our focus as Christians, not to preserve them politically. But I understand the big picture. God's promise to Abraham, that is 3,800 years ago, still in play today. Zacharias knew that plan. And he knew we've been waiting at this point 1,800 years to see that plan come to pass. And now God is bringing my son Right on the heels of that, the Savior's coming in. We are going to see the fulfillment of these things. And Zacharias is getting excited about it. Here's the point I want to bring out in this. These prophecies, these promises, very old. You don't have to wait until they're fulfilled to get excited about them. They can fill you with hope and joy, and you can look around. This is why people have asked this. What does the Bible say when it, or what does it mean when it says watch and pray? What does it mean to watch and pray? Look around. Look around and go, okay, I see what he's doing there. I see what God's doing there. I read the newspaper. I heard on the news, this and that. All these things are happening. And now I watch what's going on. And then I look into my Bible and I go, yep, the Bible said that, 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 and that would happen. Oh boy, I know where I'm at. We're right on the cusp of it. We're right on the brink of something's about to break loose. Something great is about to happen. And we can start to have joy and hope and Rather than get frustrated and, 
and bitter about what's going on, we watch. Say, this is all part of the plan. Verse number 74, that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. To be saved from our enemies. For Israel, this is a big deal. They've been waiting over 700 years for their Messiah to show up and rescue them from the enemy. It started with Israel, the northern tribes, in about 700 B.C., the Assyrians came. And then in 606, the Babylonians came into Judah, then the Media Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And now at this time, the Romans are in charge. Now here's the problem with this. You look at this and you go, yep, yep, me too, pastor. I got so many enemies. I got so many problems. I can't wait for God to show up and just wipe all them out. My boss is such a pain in the neck. I want the Messiah to come and set him right. Sure, pastor, my wife, eh? Hey, 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 she has a problem. I need the Messiah. <laughs> Something has to fix them. All these problems, all these enemies, these things that frustrate me and bother me, I just want God to come and set it all right. We pretend as if our enemies and problems came to us in a vacuum, as if it's never our fault. Israel lost sight of something. Yes, they have enemies. Yes, they have oppressors. Yes, Life is not good for them, but it was their fault. You might be tempted to read these kind of passages and go, oh, these poor Jews, man, they're being oppressed and these people are treating them wrongly. And that's true. The Romans were horrible to the Jews, as were many of the people before that. But you have to, if you study Scripture, realize and admit that the Jews brought this on themselves. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, you have the Israelites coming to Samuel. He's an older man at this point. He's led the people faithfully for many years. Now he's on his way out. His boys are corrupt. It actually says that about him. They took bribes. They slept with women. It, it was, they were just a mess. And the Israelites were scared that the country would be turned over to these guys. So they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, give us a king to reign over us like all the nations. You know what they're saying? We want to be like everybody else. And Samuel, with a broken heart, he begins to pray, and he knows that's not the right answer. He knows that the answer is to submit yourselves, to humble yourselves before God and say, God, we'll do it your way. We don't need that earthly, worldly, secular king to fix our problems. You gave us a perfect law to govern our nation. We need not a man. We don't need democracy. We need a monarchy with a divine king reigning over it. Samuel prayed, and I've given you the verse on your paper, 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. The Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. Might I pause there just for a moment and preach? One of the worst things God can do for you sometimes is to give you what you're asking for. That's what God just said. Okay, Samuel, I'm going to answer their prayer, and they're going to wish I didn't. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. It was from this point on, God said, okay. They'd already gone through 400 and some odd years of the judges. If you know the book of Judges, that was a rough time in Israel's past. Oppressed by so many Gentile nations. And now they say, okay, we didn't learn our lesson. We want a king like all the other nations. If you can't beat them, join them. We want to be friends with them instead of God. They did not stand against culture. They gave into it. Rather than being saved from their enemies, they want to become like their enemies. God says, that hurts. That really hurts. I've been trying to reign over you. And now you're rejecting me. God, get away from us. Just give us a king. Let us handle it. Let us handle our business. Let us do it our way, not your way. God had told them 500 years before that point, He told them, you go that path, you take that king, it's going to get bad. Gentile oppressors are going to come, they're going to destroy you, and that is precisely what happened to them. A few hundred years later, it all went to pieces. The Jews brought this on themselves. They dug this pit and then jumped in the pit. It was their fault. 
on, on your paper, I've given you another verse here from the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 8, if I can bring it into our lives. James says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, he's speaking spiritually, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I'm not going to stand against culture. That's too much pressure. Rather than do it God's way, I just want to get along with people, be popular. I need to make money. I need to fame and fortune. That whole illusion, I'll go for that. Realize the consequence of it. To stand with the world is to stand against God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world, and the lust thereof, it, pa it passes away, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You have to make that choice. You have to take that stand. And before you can say, God, we want you to save us from our enemies, you might need to admit to God that I am my own worst enemy. God, I did it to myself. I put myself in this problem. I'm in captivity today, hundreds and hundreds of years, people over me, oppressing me, holding me back, and it's not all their fault. I'm part of the problem, God. God cannot sit by silently while you slap Him in the face. For 400 years, from the time of Malachi to the time of John, God stayed silent. Now He's bringing John into the world. You know what it's time for? Breaking the silence. You know the first thing John said when he stood up to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Good news, the kingdom's here, but it's conditioned. You got to repent. You have to acknowledge that the pit you're in, you digged. You put yourself there. Now, once you acknowledge that, listen, that's not the end of the story. John is not going to walk by to these Israelites and go, ah, shame on you, you're in a pit, look at how bad you are, and then walk off. John came to point out some truth to say, you're in a pit of your own making, but God, through His mercy, wants to get you out of it. Now, you're going to have to admit that you dug that pit and then reach up and take God's hand. He'll get you out of that. You see, that's the end of the story. Not just condemning, not just there to judge, but to say, listen, admit, admit what's going on, but here's how you fix it. And this, right, this brings glory to the next part of the passage, verse 76, and you can write on your paper, send the light. This is point number three, send the light. Zacharias broke his silence and stood against culture. God sent John, he broke his silence and said, I'm going to save you from your enemies, but it's conditioned on you repenting. Verse 76, and thou child, Zacharias now addresses his boy. Moms, dads, do you ever sit down and address your children with the Bible? Say, son, sissy, this is what God wants to do in your life. Zacharias did. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. What an honor. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Outstanding. Zacharias gets it. The highest, the Lord, is Jesus. He sees the whole thing. He gets it. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. How did they find remission or forgiveness? Remission is a, another word for forgiveness. How would they find that? It's not God walking by and going, let's forget what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter. I just forgive you and let's go on. It's not that. It's conditioned on them saying, God, I was wrong. But that shines light on verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God. What is mercy? God not giving you something that you deserve. Every single one of us in this room today, we dug our own pit. We put ourselves in it. It was our decision to sin, to do it our way, to do it the world's way instead of God's way. That was us. I did it. You did it. And what I deserve is for God to walk by and say, you dug the pit, now you deal with it. But He didn't. He sends messenger after messenger 
after messenger, and then he sends his son, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. And each time he comes by that pit, he goes, shame, what a mess you've made. He should walk off. That's what I deserve. That's not what he did. He stops right there at the pit and says, watch, not only will I lift you out of the pit, he gets down there in the pit with you and says, now get on my back, we're climbing out. That's precisely what Jesus did. He didn't stay up in heaven and reach down one hand. He came all the way down to the pit we dig and said, I'll be right there with you. In the form, it says, of sinful flesh. The form of it. He didn't have sinful flesh, but in the form of it. Right down there in the dirty pit we were in. That's mercy. Now listen, if you don't think you're in that deep, dark, dirty pit, you're not going to appreciate the tender mercy of God you don't realize how much he's doing for you but once you look around and go wow I put myself in this mess and you still care about me I want to break my silence and say glory to God praise God I was in this pit no way out and he passed by through the tender mercy of our God whereby the day spring It's a fancy word for the sun. The day spring from on high hath visited us. Why would he liken it to the sun? Because all I know is darkness. Verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Understand in the Bible, yes, darkness, we we can be referring to the physical absence of light, yes, but there's also a metaphorical way in which this is used. It's a spiritual thing. Darkness is the absence of knowledge or understanding. And if you don't know the way forward, you can't see the way forward. You're lacking that knowledge and understanding. You can see in verse 77, he sent John to give that knowledge. At the end of verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know what's brilliant about 77 to 79? Zacharias is addressing John. But in the process of saying, you're going to be the prophet of the highest, Zacharias switches to talking about Jesus. And, and it's, it's such a subtle shift, it's hard to pick up where he stops talking about John and starts talking about Jesus. Would to God that our lives were so intermingled with Christ that you can't tell where we stop and he starts, that it just all blends together. <laughs> where our speech is so filled with Christ, our mind, our our hearts, our lives is just so much for to me to live is Christ that people would look at it and go, I don't know if that's Him or Christ. All I can just see is that there's so much light from Christ shining out of it. John came to guide those feet. The day spring, of course, is not John, but Jesus. Jesus came to give that light, yes, but John is pointing the people to Jesus. They're working together. He says, guys, you've been in darkness long enough. Now, forgive me, I don't mean to break, to to mix the metaphors too much here. My third point is send the light, but the name of my sermon is breaking the silence. So sending the light would help your eyes, breaking the silence would help your ears. I hope you give me a little bit of grace as I mix my metaphors here. Maybe some of you remember this story. It, It was in the news a lot back in 2018. There were 12 I would say soccer players, you would rightfully say football players, soccer, I don't know how we got that word soccer, football players, young boys, ages I think 11 to 14, 12 of them and their coach, a young man of the age of 25 in Thailand, and they went for a little outing after one of their practices into a cave called Tam Lung. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They walked into this cave, the cave as I understand is about two and a half meters long, that's how far they went in, it might be longer. And it's underneath of a mountain. So if you go from the top of the mountain all the way to where the cave's at, it's about a kilometer down. They have a sign posted on the mouth of the cave between July 1, or 1 July, and November, whatever, do not enter the cave. Because that would be the rainy season. The rains would would bring uh, floods and monsoons were coming at this time. And if if it floods, the waters cover the mouth of the cave. You understand the entire cave would be flooded. They said, do not enter. It was 23rd June. And the coach said, boys, let's give it a try. And they went. They went two and a half kilometers deep into that cave. 
No one knew it for several hours, of course, and then the night passed, and the next day the boys aren't home, and people are starting to get worried, and they're starting to... One player who booked off from that day's practice went home and said, yeah, I know they went to such and such a cave. So they went there, they found all the bicycles and backpacks, and they knew these boys are in this cave. Immediately, they start drilling, trying to drill through the cave, because wouldn't you know it, the rain came right after that, and the water started to rise and because of the way that this cave is shaped, it's like it, it ups and downs, little mountains and valleys, if you will, throughout the cave, so that as the water rises, you can run to the high ground, but after a while, you see sometimes it could be 100 meters high, and then drop 150 meters, and then 30 meters, and you see it just undulates like that. There's no light in there. You don't know how high or how low you are. They start drilling holes everywhere trying to get air passage in. They start drilling other holes trying to suck water out. They don't know if the boys are alive or dead. People start crawling, professional Navy SEALs getting into the cave and they can barely make it in. Navy SEALs. Their air tanks will only allow them to go so many hundred meters in and they have to turn around and come back. Several days pass. They don't know. Again, you can't get message to them. There's no cell signal in there. No light, sitting in darkness, wondering, is he alive? Is my boy dead? Finally, on the 1st of July, this is what, eight days later, one of the Navy divers from England, they had flown several specialists in. He made his way through. The water was so murky, you could not see right in front of you. You'd hit the rock before you saw the rock. He finally found his way to an opening, and before he could see or hear the boys, he smelled them. They'd been there eight days. And on a little, what looks like a small little cleft or a beach almost, he smelled them. He turned the light on, and you could see there's, you can see it on YouTube. The boys are blown away by that light. They probably had started to think no one will ever find us here. Can you imagine the relief when somebody showed up with some light? And for the first time in eight days, they heard somebody's voice other than their team. Because the only thing that the team would have been saying is, how are we going to get out? They had no answers. It would have been cries of despair. Somebody finally showed up with good news and said, we found you. You know what those boys asked first? Can we leave now? And that diver had to say, no, I'm sorry. We don't have a way to get you out. We found you deep in this dark pit now, deep in this dark cave that you put yourself in, and we don't have a way to get you out. It's too dangerous. We're still trying to put together a plan, but we're going to bring food. We're going to bring supplies. Don't worry. We're making a plan. And it took another week. They started bringing food. They actually thought maybe we should just bring them enough food and medicine so that they can live here for the next four months until the waters go down because there's really no good way to get them out. And they said, well, with the sanitation of that area, I mean, that's their bathroom as well as their living quarters. There's just no way we can leave them there. They might run out of breathable air, this and that. They said, we can't do that. We have to get them out. One of the Navy divers that were, he was bringing air tanks delivering it to the spot where they were beached, he died trying to come out. That's how dangerous this was. He's professional. They said the only way out is we have to go sedate the boys a bit because we don't want them to panic, and then one by one, we will send the best of the best into this cave and pull the boy out. And they had some of these places you could barely crawl through with the tank on your back. They had to come out two and a half kilometers of this take them hours upon hours just to make it one way and not able to see in front of their face. They had to feel their way through it. On July the 8th, the first two boys came out. They brought them out, interestingly enough, two by two. <laughs> out they came. And by July the 10th, all the boys had been rescued, the coach as well, and now they're seeing the light of day. Do you know how many times we have put ourselves deep into that dark cave? And we did it because it looked fun. And we thought the rain won't come, we'll be fine. 
Listen, I know the sign says 1 July and it's 23 June. We're fine. Sin is often deceitful like that. Sin isn't going to tell you the real schedule. You just never know. It took over 10,000 people working on that project to bring those 13 people out. 10,000 people from America, Australia, UK, Thailand, the best of the best from all over the world. You know what they had to do? Let's send the light into that cave and do whatever's necessary to bring them out. That is precisely, friend, what we need to do. There's people stuck deep in those caves. And we need to send the best of the best. We got John who came. We got Jesus who came. And now he says, listen, even with us coming and doing what we did, we've set the plan in motion. We've set that line, right? That guideline that shows you how to get to those lost people and how to get them out. That guideline, right? Very important. The best of the best said we cannot lose the guideline. If we let our hand off of that, we could get lost in the tunnel. We could get lost in the cave. Jesus and John, they set the guideline. That's the gospel. Now we just hang on to that and we say, okay, I'll do, it. I'll do it the way the Spirit of God leads me. I'll go to where they're at. I'll go into that dark cave and guide, what does he say, our feet into the way of peace. Come here, let me show you the way out. Whatever it takes. It's a joint effort. Might take 10,000 of us. This is why we're into missions. Send the light to those waiting in darkness. Even if it's a darkness of their own making, at the bottom of your outline, I've given you words to a song you now, you now know it very well. There are souls to rescue. There are souls to save. Do you see it? There is a call comes ringing over the restless waves. Send the light. Send the light. There are souls to rescue. There are souls to save. Send the light. Send the light. You know what it says about John. John the Baptist, in John chapter 5, Jesus said he was a burning and a shining light. These people that had sat in darkness in the shadow of death their whole lives, finally somebody showed up, broke the silence, and said, here's the light for your path. Here's how you get out of that cave and make your way to God. To finish the chapter in Luke 1 verse 80, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing until Israel unto Israel. Do not think that listening to one sermon says, okay, now I got it all figured out. I'm going to take the world by storm and rescue them all. That's not how it goes. But John was willing to go off, get prepared, say, God, I know this greater purpose you have for me and I'm going to be patient, let you work in my life until you say go. And then off I go to be that burning and shining light. How about you? How about you? What part in this plan do you play? It's time, I think, that you break the silence. You know what the plan is. You know where the guideline's at. You know people are stuck in that cave. Now go tell them how to get out. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Music will softly play. May you please search your heart for a moment. Perhaps the silence you need to break is that between you and God because God a long time ago told you that you dug a pit and put yourself in it. God said, this cave, you went in. You put yourself there. Break the silence. Look to God and say, God, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Now please, God, get me out of the cave. Here's the thing. He comes all the way into the depth of the cave, grabs you, and rescues you. He doesn't just shout from the mouth of the cave. That won't work. Jesus had to come down to where we're at. Took on human flesh and said, I'll show you the way out. Now come with me. Follow me. I'll get you out of this cave. Maybe today you're a believer, but you've been in a cave of heartache and depression and bitterness and confusion. Jesus came, John was sent to show us this is the way out of that.
I'm asking you today to turn to that light source. Let Him guide your feet. Let Him show you what the next step will be, should be. Break the silence. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm in a cave and I've been here long enough. In just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. I'd like to know who I'm praying for. Is there anybody that, and please, I'm not going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking. This is just between you, me, and the Holy Spirit. Say, Pastor, would you just pray for me? I'm stuck in one of these dark caves, and it is my fault. And I just want to see God do something in my life to get me out of that. Would you raise your hand? I'm just going to pray for you for that. Anybody like that? I appreciate your honesty. Now, here's the thing. Once you reach out like that and you break that silence, you better be serious now. Because once you grab onto that rescue diver, you can't stop halfway back. You stop halfway back in those murky waters, you're not going to make it. Once you grab hold, there's no turning back. Father, so many hands went up. That cave can get dark and lonely, scary. Lord, you know our hearts. They get burdened down. And sometimes it's not our fault, God. You know that. But many times it is. Lord, please shine the light in our lives. Show us what we did wrong. Show us how to make it right. Father, you know us. We're too weak to come out of the cave by ourselves. Lord, we want to grab on as tightly as we can to you and say, please rescue me. For anybody here that's never been saved, Lord, that's never taken that hand, never accepted Jesus as their Savior, please might this be the day they receive that tender mercy. Lord, help us as Zacharias broke the silence to stand up and praise your name for all the goodness that you've shown in our lives. Help us not to be afraid of friend or family, what they might think, but to stand for you. Thank you for working amongst us this morning. Please see us home safely. Prepare our hearts for what we might receive later. And we ask it in Jesus' name.